Rarely has brand recognition soared to such fetishistic heights, and I regret to inform you that, aside from the updating of the vocal cast, the most blatant discrepancy between the old and the new is a very slight increase in the comedy of flatulence. That is a very funny review. Anthony Lane from The New Yorker talking about, that's right, the new Lion King film roaring into theaters. As always, a thrill to have you here on Cinephile. Really appreciate the support. We need all of your support, in fact, so subscribe, rate, and review. Tell all your friends. I uh, got a little feedback from our man, Rich Cook, who's executive producing. I, we had we Basically, we just need people to be as invested as possible in spreading the word, as I said. So seriously, subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe, do what you got to do, and go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review. Let us know what you think of the podcast, what we're doing well, what you'd like to change. Give us a four-star review if you're so kind to do that, and uh, we'll go from there. Uh, lots of great things to look forward to. The return of my good buddy, Ben Lyons, who comes on. He's going to talk about Blinded by the Light, the new Grinder Chudna movie, which is coming out in a few weeks. Also, Sea of Shadows, also Sundance Films in the summer, and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, the Bada Binge continues as now we're on to season three. And in terms of Mount Rushmore, since we're talking about The Lion King, we're going to talk about films that were terrible remakes. Pretty good list of some atrocious movies. But let's start it out with The Lion King. It roars into theaters. And what a surprise, a big discrepancy between the critics and the fans. 52% on Rotten Tomatoes, according to critics. 89% audience score. And so... The fans are completely split on this one versus the critics who watch so many movies as a living. And I'll say this. I, I thought the film was decent. It's not one that I will call a personal favorite. It is virtually a note-by-note uh, faithful remake of the original film. I feel like it's 95% of what the original Lion King was. So the movie is best enjoyed by those who are nostalgic and those who love the original film. If you fall into either of those two camps, then I think you'll really enjoy the movie because John Favreau clearly... Um, took a lot of work when it comes to the CGI and the cinematography is beautiful and the songs are great. I mean, the best part to me is the music and, you know, Circle of Life comes out. It's a real banger that gets the audience going with lots of great music and a real stirring kind of rise, a crescendo. I Just Can't Wait to Be King is a great song. Of course, my favorite is Hakuna Matata, which is done well by Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen. Uh, playing uh, Timon and Pumbaa, respectively. So I thought all of that really fit, um, and there's certainly some set pieces like the Stampede, but at the same time, I found it a little bit dry. I didn't think the film had nearly as much heart as the original. Um, you know, the original, at least it's stylized. In this case, you know, it, it kind of feels a little bit different. So for me, I think The Lion King, I'm going to give it two and a half Maple Leafs. I think it's fine. Uh, like I said, I, I thought it was a decent film. I didn't love it, though. I didn't think it had that spark of creativity. I didn't think it feel, you know, breathtakingly original at all. It didn't really feel fresh. It was more something that I can appreciate from a technical marvel. It's a sweet movie. It certainly is a kid's movie. You know, my wife and my kids really enjoyed the film, so I will certainly give it credit for that, but it's not something that, to me, um, you know, totally something I'm going to see again. As far as the voice cast is concerned, listen, it's critical. You get James Earl Jones back as Mufasa. Uh, I do miss Nathan Lane. I do miss Jeremy Irons' scar, although she would tell you it was fun. I just thought that Irons was such a good scar. Beyonce, of course, is in the film. It's a small role. Uh, she does sing as well. So I, I, John Oliver, I did think, was funny. He was pretty good, obviously playing the bird, Zazu. Um, so like I said, ultimately, if you're a fan of The Lion King, then you're going to like the movie. It's going to make just disgusting box office grosses, which means that we're going to get more and more of this lack of creativity and just more and more remakes. But uh, Joe, I know you haven't seen The Lion King yet, but what have you taken from the reviews or what you've read about it? You know, it looks like a movie that's really visually pretty stunning and just the technology. And it seems like he's it's gotten better than even from the Jungle Book remake that John Favreau did. Uh, but I guess I, my only question is, is it true that Can You F Feel the Love Tonight takes place during the day? 
Uh, that's an excellent point you make. Yes, we're, we're not really focused on the exact specifics of the song, even though it's in the chorus and it is the title. Yes, it does It does take place during the day. Can you feel the love tonight? You're right. Classic from Elton John. Okay, then I'm out. I'm, I'm, I'm tapping out on it. <laughs> All right, perfect. We'll get to some entertainment news. As Quentin Tarantino's Star Trek film will be Pulp Fiction but in space. According to Screen Rant, when sitting down with Tarantino to discuss Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I will be reviewing next week on Cinephile. It's opening this Friday. Deadline was able to ask for an update about his R-rated Star Trek. When talking about the film getting an R-rating versus a PG-13, Tarantino said, the thing is, when I talked to J.J. about it, he's speaking about J.J. Abrams, it's not that radical. We're just not worrying about stuff like that. He then confessed his frustration with Simon Pegg after the actor previously said the film wouldn't be like Pulp Fiction, explaining if I do it, that's exactly what it'll be. It'll be a Pulp Fiction in space. This is Tarantino. That Pulp Fiction-y aspect, when I read the script, I felt I have never read a science fiction film that has had this stuff in it ever. There's no science fiction film movie that has this in it. And they said, I know, that's why we want you to make it. It's at the very least unique in that regard. So yes, it's going to be very much like Pulp Fiction in space. And he has said before, um, he only wants to do 10 movies, and this is his ninth film, now, if Star Trek, he does it. I don't know if he's going to produce it. He's going to direct it as well. He he said he'd like to write and direct it, but, you know, whatever. If it's going to be just producing and somebody else writes it and he directs it, we'll see. But that would technically be 10 movies. Of course, the 10 movies, I believe, is just saying the ones he's directed. You're not taking into account a True Romance, which he wrote the script for, or stuff like that. So, who knows, Joe? Maybe we'll get the Star Trek Tarantino movie sooner rather than later. Imagine that would be the final film of his career. Oh, I would love it. I would I would love it. And this is the draw. I'm not a Trekkie, so this is the the exact draw that I would want and need out of a Star Trek movie. Quentin Tarantino. I'm just wondering how, like, foul and how many uh, just bad words he's going to throw into the film. Yeah, it's going to be beam me the F up, Scotty. We all know that. Other entertainment <laughs> news. My, my man, Mahershala Ali, two-time guest here in Cinephile, two-time Academy Award winner as well, starring in the Blade reboot for Marvel. Actually, just a one-time guest on Cinephile. He is a two-time Academy Award winner. But he's joining the Marvel Studios as the star of a Blade movie. Casting announced during Comic-Con, where Ali received massive applause, put on a Blade baseball cap. Speaking to The Hollywood Reporter after the presentation, Marvel Studios president Kevin Fake said that Ali called the studio after winning the Oscar for his work on Green Book. When Mahershala calls, you answer. At the meeting, Ali came right out and said he wanted to do Blade, and that was that. I mean, this is a really talented guy. He's really smart. He's obviously done a variety of different things here, Joe. I think it was, you know, smart to do a small indie movie like Moonlight, you know, kind of a, a bigger picture with Green Book, but still not a major budget. You get another Oscar. Uh, you do a hit show like True Detective. He lands an Emmy nomination for that. And now you say, you know what, I'm going to do a comic book movie and really prove that I've got box office clout. I agree with you 100%. And this is also, I think, just a great idea for uh, a remake. There's so many reboots and remakes these days that I, I feel like this franchise is really conducive to an update. At this point, I think he's the perfect uh, candidate to play Blade. Yeah, it's going to be really cool to look forward to. Also, Better Call Saul, the web series, two Emmy nominations revoked. So Better Call Saul employee training, uh, Madrigal Electromotive Security over an issue of running time. Posing as training videos, the 10 episodes featured Banks as head of security of Madrigal Electromotive giving lectures and tips to new hires. Earlier this week, they received a nomination in the short-form comedy or drama series category while Jonathan Banks were an actor in a short-form comedy or drama series nomination, reprising his role as fixer Mike Ehrmantraut. But because the fact it did not meet the minimum required runtime, which is two minutes for at least six episodes, the Academy declared it ineligible to compete in either category. So think about that. Two 
Emmy nominations they were going to get posting Ash training videos, the 10 episodes they end up getting it revoked because of running time. Like to me, Joe, this is a stupid one. I mean, if you think that this Better Call Saul web series is worthy of note, then go ahead and give it the nomination. Like I get that there's rules, but I mean, the fact that the minimum required runtime, two minutes for at least six episodes, like who cares? Right. It, it seems like an arbitrary number that they chose. Why isn't it a minute 30? How come it has to be two minutes? I don't understand it. Yeah, that one's bizarre. I've never actually seen... Of course, I'm a fan of Better Call Saul, and I love uh, uh, Bob Odenkirk and Ray Seahorn on the show, but I'm curious now. Now, now you know what? This is giving pub to it. Now I'd like to watch the uh, web series and see what it's all about. And one other bit of news before we get to my man Ben Lyons making his return appearance here to Cinephile. Fargo Season 4, the full cast and characters are revealed. Of note, Jason Schwartzman is in the show playing Josto Fata. Uh, you got Jack Houston, Ben Wishaw, and the big one, of course, is Chris Rock. Uh, season four taking place in 1950, featuring a brand new setting, moving the action from Minnesota to Kansas City. It focuses on two crime syndicates who have come to an uneasy peace, cemented by the heads of both crime families exchanging their youngest sons. Chris Rock playing the head of one of the families, and as per the son swapping agreement, is raising his enemy's offspring. The status quo is rocked, however, when the mafia boss of Kansas City dies during a routine surgery. I, I thought nothing was better than season one of Fargo, much like I thought there was nothing better than season one of True Detective. But the other seasons have been interesting, particularly the casting. You know, Kirsten Dunst was really good in the show, uh, Fargo, and I think it was season three. Uh, season one, of course, of Billy Bob Thornton, who was uh, incredible in his performance. But Joe, being a Minnesota guy, you're going to be all in on Fargo. Oh, I'm all in on it. Uh, I'm, I, I, I love it. Anytime that we can get recognition on a national scale, I'm all for it. And I trust Noah Hawley, the creator, with my life. Everything he's put out, I've always enjoyed. So I'm really, really excited to see uh, what they'll do in Kansas City, especially how Chris Rock is going to be in this TV series. I'm with you. I mean, that is a really interesting casting, so hopefully he will bring the pain. Now it's time to a guy who always brings the thunder, my man Ben Lyons. All right, a real pleasure to bring in my man, Ben Lines. Of course, if you're a fan of Cinephile, you're well-versed in Ben's greatness and just how critical he is to my lifetime. He's the guy who got me to the Oscars, not only once, but twice the Oscars All Access, which, by the way, the most recent incarnation, minus Ben and I, did get nominated for an Emmy Award. So congrats to all our old friends. We, we still hold out hope, though, that we'll be making a return visit at some point. But check out Ben's podcast, which is available on Podcast One, among his many jobs. It's terrific. Uh, I was listening to the latest one. I didn't hear Jesse Eisenberg yet, but I was listening to Billy Brimblecombe, who is a fascinating guy. Cancer survivor, amputee, really put his heart and soul into this organization. Inspiring guy, Ben. You're the best, Adnan. Thank you so much, man. I loved having Billy on the Lion's Den because this is a guy I met at Kay Cannon's house. Kay wrote Pitch Perfect. She directed Blockers. And she did a fundraiser for his organization called Steps of Faith, which raises money for people who don't have the means to get the parts they need as amputees, whether it's limbs, whether it's, you know, support, emotional, all of it. And he's put legs and arms on over 250 people now. He was Jason Sudeikis' best friend in college. So every year in Kansas City, Jason and a bunch of comedians, Will Forte, Fred Armisen, they help support Billy and they throw a big concert called Thunder Gong, which is a completely made-up word but sounds awesome. And it's a great event, and I'm hopefully going to be able to get out there in November. So Thunder Gong raises money for Steps of Faith, and Billy's is one of those people you meet in life where you're incredibly inspired. I haven't 
lost any limbs. I don't have anybody in my life who has experienced this, but I was deeply moved by his story and wanted to support however I could. So check him out, Billy Brimblecom of Steps of Faith. Yeah, and check out other episodes as well. You know, you're a real passion here, Ben, with friends and people in the industry who not only are really talented, but speak from the heart. You mentioned Billy. Also, Ed Bagley Jr. was great. You know, he's a real environmentalist. You talk about a guy who puts his money where his mouth is. That guy, every word out of his mouth, you can tell. He is focused in the environment. He is living his life a certain way. Uh, Jimmy Maggio talking about being a sportscaster, the life of a freelancer. Greg Kinnear, fantastic. I mean, Greg Kinnear, he is so likable. I mean, literally, you're talking to him. I just have a smile on my face the whole time. So lots of great guests you've had in the past there. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I compared uh, Greg Kinnear to like Jalen Rose in that they've lived a full career. They've been a scrub. They've been the star. They've been in the finals. They've been on a bad team. Like Greg Kinnear has been at the Oscars. He's gone straight to video. He's done literally everything. Been a host, yeah. been a talk show host, been an actor. Like I love Greg Kinnear. So thank you, man. I, I appreciate that. And you mentioned Ed Begley. You and I are trying to get back to the Oscars. Maybe if we ride a bicycle to the Academy Awards like Ed did. <laughs> <laughs> He'll invite us back. He tells that story on our episode, yeah. which is great. Oh, he did that he, in the late 80s or early 90s. He's unbelievable. Tuxes and bikes is the way to go. And by the way, when you mentioned it, you asked him about doing Talk Soup. I, I still remember it was so great on the Larry Sanders show. God, I keep thinking about it because Rip Torn, of course, recently passed away. But there's the last episode, Kinnear is there, and he's, they're waiting in the green room, and he tells Bruno Kirby, I was nominated for an Oscar. And Bruno Kirby's astonished. He's like, what, what do you mean, for that talk, that talk show you did? He's like, no, no, I, I, I was you know, I was in As Good As It Gets. I'm up for an Academy Award. He's like, really? When did that happen? Like, like You're right. Kinnear has completely had this metamorphosis as an actor, which is really interesting. All right. Let's talk about what's out there right now. Sea of Shadows, which I see is playing relatively near me here in Montclair. I can't wait to see it. But those who are unaware of it, Ben, explain what it's all about. Documentary, environmentalism. It sounds fantastic. Same team that brought us the Ivory game a few years back that not only created a lot of noise here in the States, but actually changed government policy in China. China outlawed the distribution and sale of elephant tusks as a result of the work done by these filmmakers in the ivory game. So now here they are teaming up again in a story called Sea of Shadows that tells the story of the Sea of Cortez and the hunting of the Totuaba, the Totuaba fish in Mexico in this one little area that's 20 miles by 20 miles is hunted because its bladder is considered medicinal gold in China. While there's no scientific proof of this, it has become a luxury in China to have the bladder of the Totoaba fish. That is not even the beginning of the problem. Yes, the Totoaba are now on a course to be extinct in the next five or ten years, but the real problem is that these fishermen put up these nets to capture the Totoaba, and in doing so, they kill a dolphin-slash-whale animal that is very rare called the vaquina so much so now that there are less than 15 vaquinas left on the planet less than 15 and this species will be extinct so dicaprio to his credit has been very instrumental in funding the efforts to save the vaquina and he was behind the ivory game and he approached this filmmaker and said i'm doing this uh this uh this conservation mission and we can get you all access. You got to be ready to go in five weeks down in Mexico. And sure enough, they were able to figure it out, get the money, the support from Nat Geo. And they go down there and they tell not only the story of combating the fishermen out on the ocean but, or in the Sea of Cortez, but, but also of who's profiteering off this. So there's a man named Andrea Costa 
who runs an organization called Earth League International that persecutes eco crimes around and, and, and investigates and documents. And, you know, it's made up of ex CIA and ex FBI. And they go into Mexico to, to go after this drug cartel, essentially. And it's fascinating. And it's going to win the Oscar. And, uh, you know, it's one of those movies that'll stay with you the rest of your life. So I've gotten to do a couple Q&As for it. And there's a count at the end of August for the Vaquina to see if recent efforts to help in its mating has been able to sustain the amount or help populate the ocean with a few more. But the fact that this poor, I mean, you take one look at this little animal and it's a combination of a dolphin and a whale and it's just love. And here we are as human beings using the ocean as our toilet and destroying it. And it's heartbreaking and it's terrifying. And it's exactly why documentary films need to be made because it's going to change the world and inspire people. So be sure to see and support Sea of Shadows. Can't wait to see it, man. That is uh, wonderfully expressed. It sounds like a really special movie. And as you said, you, you mean... It's about the world and, and everything in our vibe right now. It just gets scarier and scarier what's actually happening. Uh, in terms of just Sundance movies in the summer, you know, I can't wait to see Blinded by the Light. My girl, Gurinder Chadda, of course, had the great film Bennett Like Beckham. Uh, and it's about a, it's based on a true story. I want to read the book as well. But this Pakistani kid growing up in London, you know, conservative parents, and he wants to be a poet. And, you know, his parents frown upon that occupation. And then he gets some cassette tapes of Bruce Springsteen. And he finds that, like, Bruce is like his hero and he inspires him. And, and I mean, the trailer is fantastic for it. They're calling it the feel-good movie of the summer. I just want to know how many montages are there set to Bruce's Dancing in the Dark? <laughs> well, I saw the Sundance cut, so something tells me that whoever purchases it's like, we love it, but we might need to shave off like 15 minutes of the montages because after a while, you're like, I get it. He's Pakistani living in rural Britain, and he loves <laughs> and he loves Bruce Springsteen. He's, why does he keep jumping on the diner table, you know? But it's so much fun, and I think I'm probably the only person in the history of media to interview Gurinder Chadha, get on a plane at Sundance, take a red eye, and then interview Von Miller and Jarvis Landry at the Super Bowl. And it should be noted, Von Miller is a big Gurinder Chadha fan, which is why he agreed to the interview with you. He loves Bennett like yeah. Beckham and Kira Knightley. Gurinder Chadha, really excited to see what Joe Flacco can do with the Broncos. So I... Um, I, I love the fact that Gurinder Chadha's, you know, most famous work, obviously, Bendit Like Beckham, is to this day the only movie in the history of planet Earth to be distributed in theaters in every single country on Earth, including North Korea, including Iraq, including wow. every single country on Earth where they distribute movies, that movie was in theaters. And she's very proud of that. It's the only film in the history of cinema where that has actually happened. And I think this latest movie, Blinded by the Light, has that type of global appeal to it with the Springsteen and, and all of it. The heart behind it, the, the lead kid in it is a rock star and is going to be around for a long time. Big, big fan. And they're going to position it in August and it's going to maybe get Golden Globe noms and all in. And as well as Sea of Shadows, which is a Sundance movie. And this one, there's another one called Britney Runs a Marathon that Amazon mm -hmm. picked up um, with Jillian Bell. It's produced by Tobey Maguire about a woman who's overweight in her 30s, and so she decides to run a marathon to get her life together. And it's hysterical, and it's so good, and it's just such a breath of fresh air in a summer of superheroes and explosions and Godzillas and all this nonsense to have these kind of real human stories about people changing their lives, uplifting themselves, finding inspiration in music and culture and 
I love Brittany runs a marathon. Jillian Bell's hysterical in it. It's going to be another one of the breakout hits of the rest of the summer. Yeah, I was reading about it in uh, either Entertainment Weekly or Hollywood Reporter, and they were talking about the fact that, you know, that the star of the film, like she's, she's using a lot of personal experience from it. And like you said, body images and body shaming, all that kind of stuff. So there's some real uh, poignance and some real um, autobiographical elements into a story, which I'm sure a lot of women can relate to. Yeah, it's a lot more relatable than like, will he get the last Infinity Stone and wipe out planet gobbledygook or whatever they're talking about is, you know, <laughs> the Avengers at this point. I, you know, uh, you know so, it's, just, it's just nice that the movies that you wait in line for in the snow that you, you, you don't know anything about and you've done the Sundance thing, so you know how something can feel so big in January and then disappear. Well, it's nice to see that the, the, the footprints of that festival last all the way deep into August. You know, it's nice. No, no question. And by the way, I heard at the premiere of Blinded by the Light, I don't know if it was the screening you saw, but Gurinder Chadha led the audience in an impromptu singing of Hungry Heart. If, if that's the case, were you there and did you sing along? I, I, no, no, I was not there. I did hear about that. I did do an interview with her, the, the young man who wrote the book and the star of the film, the three of us, and it was a Sunday morning early Sunday morning at Sundance. A lot of people aren't as big a cinephile as you and I. Don't, don't really make it to that 9 a.m. panel on Sunday morning. <laughs> and I had one of those moments where I was like, I'm sitting here doing this. There's like 15 people here. They're getting the bartenders and the people who are working the activations to stop their work to come fill out the rest of the room so it's not embarrassing, right, that there's no one there. But I'm like, this is one of those moments where I'm going to be like, Nine months from now, when everyone's talking about this movie and it's a huge hit and they're trying to get her, I'm just going to laugh because this is such an amazing opportunity that all my friends are hungover and missing right now. <laughs> like, it's, so, right? it's just crazy. It's, that, that, maybe you were there. I'm so glad you got to do that. It's such a crazy place. You're in the snow, hungover, nine in the morning in a little theater that's empty with a woman who's directed one of the more inspiring pieces of pop culture that you're going to see this year. And it should be celebrated, and I hope people give it a chance. Blinded by the light. I think it comes out in August. I don't know the exact date, but it's Yeah, out. August 16th. And I'm sure, by the way, Jason Horowitz was not hungover. He was there with you every step of the journey. <laughs> yeah. We definitely um, have different Sundance experiences. Let's just say that, <laughs> me, and, uh, me and Horowitz. Yeah, we definitely do. But, uh, and lastly, you, know, you want you want yeah, to mention the Hobbs and Shaw premiere, even though I'm I'm oh. not a fan of this kind of film. But The Rock and Jason Statham, you you were at the premiere. I'm going to guess you hosted, or you're the MC for this. How this happen? No, so 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 this is where you and I differ. Because yes, I am a cinephile, card carrying member of the tribe. Yes, I'm out here at Sundance and all these film festivals. But also, Adnan, I do live my life one quarter mile of a time, and I also <laughs> believe in family. And I live my principles like Dom Toretto. So I'm a huge Fast and Furious guy. That said, this is the only time I'll ever say this, and it rings true. The movie needed Vin Diesel. And it feels on the cheap without Vin Diesel. Hobbs and Shaw, a spinoff, obviously, the Fast franchise. The Rock, Statham, their characters show up in five and six. Or, and they had great chemistry, and Vin Diesel apparently is insane. So Universal spun off, and when did... Uh, of Hobbs and Shaw movie. I went to the premiere. I'm so fired up. I'm with my friend John Budish, who also lives his life one quarter mile at a time, and he's ready to go. And 30 minutes in, we're having a good time, and all of a sudden, in the front row, there's a commotion, and four or five people start standing up, then 20 people start standing up, then there's some smoke and some more commotion, and I'm like, 
I'm out of here. I'm sorry. That is not for me. So everyone runs out of the theater. Turns out it's okay. Just somebody spilled a soda and an electrical outlet, and it caused a little commotion. But, you know, we live in 2019. You don't know what's going on. And I'm, at the, I'm outside, and there's Timbaland, and there's DeMar DeRozan, and Terry Champion, and no one knows what's going on. Sure enough, the Rock gets on the mic. He says, don't worry, everyone. It's okay. Let the record show that Statham ran out of the theater. I stayed here to protect you guys. And uh, let's start up the movie again. But I was I was freaked out, so I didn't stick around. And I went to Dantana's and had a steak. But I was like, this is crazy. Very scary feeling. But also, something tells me Hobbs and Shaw survived and they'll live to tell another day. Like, I don't need to see the end of the movie. I think I'll be okay in figuring out the outcome. But, uh, but yeah, scary stuff, man. It's, you know, you can't mess around with security in 2019. No, that was like I was at the Raptors parade where they had gunshots fired there, and you're like, oh, my God. Like, it, it was like, this is Toronto. We're Canadians. We're supposed to be civil and mild-mannered, and it put a damper on the whole thing. It's like Matt Devlin had the toughest job. It's like after, you know, 20 minutes of silence, he's like, Larry, Larry. Like, he's trying to get the crowd fired up for Larry Tannenbaum. I'm like, no, no, people are scared right now. And that was like a million people. Like, imagine, I mean, I get claustrophobic. You're stuck in the middle of that. That's crazy. I'm with you. If you're in a movie theater, all of a sudden you hear something, that is scary stuff. That's it. I'm done. So uh, I'm glad everything was okay. I'm glad it was a total false alarm. It was great to have The Rock there as a voice of, like, calm. Because if you're going to be in a scary situation, might as well the guy who, you know, made Skyscraper entertaining, like, be there. So that's nice. But, uh, but, but yeah, definitely, definitely scary stuff. But also, like, look, it's, you know, as far as this, this, this time of year goes, you know, Hobbs and Shaw and more Spider-Man and, you know, Let's, let's try to find the time. That's why it's, your podcast is so great to talk about Maiden, another Sundance movie about the first all-female sailing team to sail around the world. Uh, and Tracy Ross, their captain, and the Maiden sailboat still takes women sailing all around the world. Like, I love these kinds of stories in the summertime um, as some counter-programming to, you know, the Knicks signing four power forwards. Yeah, Christy Lemire, our friend of the podcast, she had mentioned Maiden as well. And I'm like, you know what? Ben Lyons told me about this like six months ago. I remember I remember you texting me, I think it was like in February or March, and I'm like, nobody else is more locked in here, not on the verge of March Madness than this female sailing movie. <laughs> yeah, again, in Sundance in January, you're like, yes, here's a doc about 13 women who sail around the world. Everyone's talking, and then no one talks. And then come June and July, you read an article in CW, you listen to the filmmaker on Cinephile, and it's back out in the culture. Yeah, I love it, man. Uh, as always, check out the Lions Den. It's on Podcast One. It's an absolutely fantastic listen. We will, of course, have Ben back soon. And also, tell people what you're up to now. Listen, you're the man of a thousand jobs, a thousand ventures, big golf guy, and now you're you're being employed by the PGA. I'm working with the PGA Tour and their platform, Scratch. We have a new series that will be out in September, but we're shooting it for the rest of the summer. Where each episode. I profile a new charity golf tournament. You hear about all these celebrity golf tournaments. You see photos and videos of them. So we take you behind the scenes. You get a spot in the, in the group, and, and we show, shine a light on these charities um, from Jalen Rose's school, which is not a charity. It's a school out in Detroit. But Clay Thompson's foundation to Elena Deladon Foundation. We're going to have a lot of cool people pop up. And, you know, I, uh, yeah, I get to play golf and have the PGA Tour pay for it. So it's pretty sweet. Most famous person Ben Lyons has golfed with. A is Josh Demel, B is Don Cheadle, C is Samuel L. Jackson, D is Other. What is the correct answer? The answer is D, Other. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with, uh, I was at the golf course the other day, and uh, Oliver Hudson, who was a good actor, who I love, and a great golfer, 
he says, oh, my dad's going to come play with us. So uh, that's, that's probably my biggest guy right there. All right. Good stuff, as always, from the Lions Den. Uh, enjoy Long Island. And, hey, by the way, friend of the zone here, you and your dad popping up. Great job. Red Sox, Yankees from London. So hopefully we can have more of a partnership not only with CFL but also DAZN. I loved coming on DAZN at 2 o'clock in the morning after Red Sox, Yankees in London. I did not like coming on DAZN and realizing that you don't host the show on the weekends. Um, <laughs> so... Next time I come on the show, it would be great to see you on the other end of the, of the, of the live stream. But I love seeing you and, uh, uh, you and uh, Mr. HQ talking, a, you and Scott talking a little mid-Samar in the middle of a, a rain delay or something the other night. Uh, yeah, unbelievable. Like, he, he's pretty good with the movie and stuff. i got to be honest with you, man. Like, he, he's, he's up there with lines for a cinephile. Like, he dropped a Seventh Seal reference on me the other day. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, are, are we, how many people are getting an Ingmar Bergman reference right now in the middle of Red Sox Rays? But I, I certainly wasn't appreciative. And he loved Midsommar. And I told him I just found it funny. Like, I, you know, it's obviously a very disturbing movie and very unsettling. But I was laughing at several parts of the movie. So he was questioning my own sanity. But I said, no, I, I'm going to ask Ari Aster. Like, you and I are going to run into him at some point and say, did you intend this to be a dark comedy? He'll say, yes, at times some of it was. Not all of it, of course. I mean, the rest of it's kind of I, satanic. I just loved it. Like, you could not wait, like, a year to Trojan Horse this new platform to talk of like your indie comedies and dark twisted movies over the summer. Like I'm like, maybe Adnan will give it a year. No, nope, he's a big cinephile. We're past the all-star break now. It's Scott Radowski breaking down mid tomorrow on the zone. Here we go. I'm in. Yeah, I'm no, all in. No. You're absolutely right, dude. You wouldn't think, you know, just give it one year, man. Just talk baseball, play it straight, little supermetrics, trade deadline. No, no, no. We're doing mid tomorrow. That's how we're going to do things around here. Oh, Thanks so much, Ben. I appreciate it, buddy. I love being back on Cinephile. Thanks for having me, man. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Mount Rushmore. All right, now it's time for the worst remakes of all time. We talked to you earlier about Lion King. So, you know, when you think about the worst remakes of all time, there's nothing worse, Joe, than Psycho. I mean, God, that was absolutely horrific. One of the stupidest ideas in the history of movies. Here's a Gus Van Sant remake, a shot-by-shot remake of Hitchcock's classic. It literally made no sense. Like, if if you're going to do a shot-by-shot remake except in color... Why am I even bothering with this? It was completely inferior to the original. It made me angry for all those who love the original movie, as I do. It featured one scene of Vince Vaughn staring through a peephole, like, pleasuring himself. I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, it's it's shot-for-shot remake with a couple of stupid liberties he took with the movie. But Psycho the Remake, to me, is, like, one of the worst ideas ever in a film that was not worthy of the execution or any of the time it was taken, especially when you have talent like that involved with it. So that's an easy one for me. I don't think the RoboCop remake was particularly good. That was unnecessary. That came out back in 2014. I think the Karate Kid remake, again, pointless. That came out in 2010. You got Pat Morita. You got Ralph Macho. Stick with the original. You can't improve upon that. And as far as a fourth poem, well, I don't think Charlie and the Chocolate Factory really was all that good either. As much as I like Tim Burton and Johnny Depp, that was very unnecessary. Came out in 2005. Other remakes around the way we can make fun of as well. Arthur, uh, Beauty and the Beast, Nightmare on Elm Street, Pride and Prejudice, Suspiria. 
Uh, the ones that I think are good, I mean, Shrink Canada, I actually did like the remake with Denzel Washington. I believe Jonathan Demme directed that. Meryl Shoot, pretty good. Bad News Bears, that was fine. Richard Linklater directed that with Billy Bob Thornton. Again, not as good as the original, perhaps, but those are ones that are all right. Planet of the Apes, I actually thought the remake was pretty good back in 2001. You got Halloween as well. I have not seen the remake of Conan the Barbarian back in 2011. I'm sure that's nowhere near as good as the, the Schwarzenegger original. But in terms of lousy remakes, and of course the jumping off point is The Lion King here, Joe, there's plenty of company when it comes to forgettable movies in this category. Oh, I completely agree, and I couldn't agree with you more on Psycho. I don't, I, I don't know why it, it, they just did it, but made a worse version. I would, but I, I agree with you. Beauty and the Beast, I thought was completely unnecessary. I didn't think it added anything to the Disney franchise. All of that, it, it was just bad. What do you think of uh, the Longest Yard remake? Did you ever see that one? I didn't see the Adam Sandler one. No, I've seen the original, of course, Burt Reynolds. I never bothered with the remake. You? Yeah, I did. It, it, it's I would throw it in this camp too. It's just not as good. It's it, it, and it's kind of unnecessary as well. But then I would uh, definitely throw in Conan the Barbarian. It, you're right. It's not as good as the original. Yeah, I mean you can't top Arnold here. Like, come on, what are we doing? There's only one Arnold Schwarzenegger. My buddy Scott Rogowski, in fact, my partner on DAZN, our baseball show, Change Him, just interviewed Schwarzenegger at Comic Con in the new Terminator movie. He said it looks great. Talked to Linda Hamilton as well. James Cameron producing it. So that's something else to look forward to here on Cinephile. The Bada Binge. And lastly, now it's time for the Bada Binge. As now we are on season three. So the first episode uh, features Meadow entering college at Columbia University. You got AJ ignoring authority, Carmela starting taking tennis lessons. It's a fairly slow moving episode. It was directed by Alan Coulter and written by David Chase, but it's called Mr. Ruggiero's Neighborhood. It kind of just sets the scene for the fact the FBI is following Tony around. Uh, second episode is about Tony having an anxiety attack when he finds out Meadow's new boyfriend, Noah Tannenbaum, is a Jewish African-American. Uh, thanks to my buddy Nick Durst, who has also been a part of our Twitter account. He's helping me run Cinephile on Twitter. Of course, you can follow us at CinephilePod. And he threw out the question, who is your least favorite Sopranos character? Uh, Fred tells me the number one vote was for Noah. So if you don't like Noah... You can watch season three, episode two, to find out why he's such an annoying guy. I did think he was good casting. I thought he was a good actor, but I can see why the fans didn't like him. But you can totally see how this is the kind of guy, a Jewish African-American, that would totally get under Tony Soprano's skin. Uh, episode three is Fortunate Son. Tony making a breakthrough with Dr. Melfi, uh, trying to figure out the source of his anxiety attacks. Chris becomes a made man, although he screws up his first assignment, which is hilarious. Even the ceremony where Chris becomes a made man is really well done. You think of all the ritualistic aspects of the mafia. Uh, AJ, by the Way, excelling on his freshman football team, but passes out at practice after he becomes defensive captain. So once again, like father, like son. But for this time on the Bada Bins, the episode the focus on is employee of the month. Against Tony's orders, Ralph Cifaretto starts to introduce Jackie April Jr. to members of the family business. That's right, Jackie April's kid, good-looking kid. Later you'll see him get involved with Meadow, but he gets him into the family business. And Tony's kind of like, listen, I don't want this for him. I promise his dad, you know, he'd be something better, be something different. But instead... Uh, Ralphie ignores his advice, brings Jackie Jr. into the fold. But really what this episode is about is Dr. Melfi. It's, it's Lorraine Bracco's finest hour here on The Sopranos. After being brutally attacked, she contemplates asking Tony for a favor. And that episode where she gets raped, uh, which is this episode in Play of the Month, features some of the best acting ever. It is incredibly tough to watch. I mean, if you watch it, I mean, this is about The Sopranos. It's, it's very visceral. It's aggressive. It's take no charge. And they're going to show you something as... Uh, 
horrific and as incendiary as a rape. I mean, it's uh, they're not going to cut any corners here, unfortunately, and uh, it's tough viewing. But I tell you, it was so commendable, Lorraine Bracco's performance. Um, in fact, she actually got hurt in that episode just because it was so aggressive. Obviously, unintentionally, the actor was you know just playing a part, but it was just such a rough scene. And the way that she has to deal with the aftermath of the rape and whether or not she wants to ask Tony uh, for retribution. That, that last shot is amazing where she's contemplating telling Tony about what's happened. And he kind of just looks at her and he goes, are you trying to tell me something? And she pauses and she says, no. And immediately the camera cuts to black. It's, it's uh, the second best cut to black you'll ever see on the course on the history of the Sopranos behind the first one. But um, what a great scene the way that she you knows. She's, she's not like Tony. She's not a monster. She's not going to seek retributions through violence. Um, you know, Apparently the guy's cop and he's going to get off on a technicality and her, her husband's really upset about it. But even though she could easily get her... Um, you know, revenge best best served cold through Tony taking care of this guy. She opts not to because she is a citizen. She's somebody who believes in the law. She's not a mobster. She's not a monster. Uh, in that moment, she realizes she's better than Tony than that, even though she's overcome this horrific, horrific trauma that she's now going to have to deal with. It's a, a great, great episode from Lorraine Bracco, Employee of the Month. The first few seasons, a few episodes, I should say, Joe, of uh, season three got rolling, but that one to me really stood out. 100% agree and it, it, it's it's so, you're right it's so hard to watch it's it's so intense and just the uh inner turmoil that she faces as she tries to decide if she wants to enlist Tony's help is just it really speaks to her character and who she was as a person yeah, great, great actress. And of course, as uh, she has said, David Chase originally wanted her to play the wife, Carmela. And she said, no, I've already done that. I've already played Karen, of course, in Goodfellas. It'd be much more interesting to play the, the therapist, Dr. Melfi, who was tough for her to play because she, by nature, Lorraine Bracco, is brassy and outgoing. And she said, uh, Melfi's so restrained. It was kind of tough to play. But this episode really shows her strength. Thanks, as always, for checking out Cinephile. Subscribe, rate, review. Uh, thanks to my buddy, Ben Lines, Of course, Joe, our producer, for always chipping in. We'll be back next week with a review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Cannot wait for Quentin Tarantino's new film. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.